and welcome to the Peach Black Podcast. This is our first episode, so it's really cool that you're checking in. I appreciate it. Peach Black is all about the game of entrepreneurship. If the peach represents the highlight reel that we all tell on a daily basis as entrepreneurs, the Instagram to our reality, the black represents the lessons and stories of this game that are usually left in the dark. I am your host, Charlie Regis. I am the co-founder and global business development director of the digital product studio, Peach Studios. And today we are diving into the mind of, without question, one of the most exciting young entrepreneurs on the planet. Swishko Swami is a serial tech entrepreneur and is the co-founder and CEO of TrueFan. Now, if you haven't heard about TrueFan, you need to check them out. TrueFan is the leading social intelligence platform that tells any brand in the world who their top fans are. They have clients ranging from the NFL all the way through to Netflix. They just acquired social rank. They're becoming one of the dominant powerhouses in helping brands maximize the value that they get from their audience. Swish has been named the face and future of Canadian entrepreneurship. He's been awarded the United Nations Outstanding Youth Leadership Award, and he has consulted for the likes of Google and American Express, to name a few. Swish is only 22 years old. In this episode, we dive into how do you establish credibility with major players as such a young entrepreneur? We touch on how his process has evolved for preparing for the big pitch. He's given three TEDx talks already. And we touch on how to maximize the value of your LinkedIn to engage and nurture your network. He's recognized as one of LinkedIn's top creators with over 100 million views on his content. I had so much fun recording this episode. It felt like we were having a chat over coffee and I hope you guys put some value in it. Swish Goswami, welcome to the Peach Black Podcast. Thank you for coming, my friend. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, we were, we were originally supposed to do this um, on the bottom floor of the Soho House in Toronto. We had two or three of the most exciting young entrepreneurs in the game um, to create you know, a live night combining the cultures of Soho House and the, the entrepreneurial wave that's coming through right now. But I'm really grateful that we get the chance to do this here. Same here. Same here. It's a shame that we weren't able to do the event, but I'm glad we were able to chat, especially during the time that we're living in right now. It's probably better to do it virtually. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's just on pause. We'll have to do it again next time I'm in town. Yeah. Amazing. So as a, a very young entrepreneur, um, I get the feeling that this whole journey started way before TrueFan came to life. And I'm keen to get a little bit of a taste of your first entrepreneurial experiences, you know, the first time you started to think in this way, and then we can explore how it's evolved over time. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the first wave came as a kid growing up in Singapore. Um, it's a very competitive environment there. Um, you're immediately put into a system called academic tracking, where you're either gifted, you're in that like normal lane, or you're in a lane that just needs intense help. Um, thankfully I was put into a gifted lane and it meant that when I moved to Canada, I was already learning two to three times faster than the average Canadian student. So when I moved in, in about 2004, I was about seven, eight years old. I moved to Calgary, Alberta. And given the fact that schoolwork wasn't really that hard for me, it meant that it freed up a lot of time for me to do other things. So I was playing volleyball, I was playing basketball, I was playing cricket. I was debating, I was dancing. Um, I was doing everything just to be able to figure out what my interests were, what did I like and what I didn't like. And around the age of 10, my, my dad came in 
to my room. Um, he said, hey, let's do a project together. And my dad's an engineer by trades. And together, we actually built a hovercraft in about six months. We took a Habakeli, which is a remote-controlled and rechargeable helicopter. We took the styrofoam base out, and we kept the rotor and the motor and built a new styrofoam base around it. And we were able to build a hovercraft that could go about three to four inches off the ground and was also rechargeable because it used the same remote control as a helicopter that we had stripped parts from. No way. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. I was able to sell that for about $200. And um, that Did was kind of the first entrepreneur. My classmate, one of my classmates was obsessed with Habakelli's. Um, and we were both like, all right, like this is our thing, remote controlled, rechargeable vehicles, that's our thing. Um, and after I built this, I was telling him, by the way, all about it throughout the entire process being like, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. That's the sales cycle right thought. there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just pitching him, you know, trying to keep that lead warm. Um, yeah. and then when I did show him, he loved it. And, uh, I obviously pretty sure his parents were the ones that paid for it. I don't think he at 10 years old was able to afford it, but, um, the $200 went entirely into my pocket and I was able to buy a Nintendo DS that came out that year. Um, with the Super Mario Bros. expansion pack, which is the greatest purchase I think I've made in my life thus far. <laughs> That's still such a clutch game. I mean, I want to know where this guy is right now, because if he's selling in a 200 pounds purchase to the parents at that kind of age, this guy is definitely doing something major. Yeah, I know, right? So it was, it was just incredible. Like that moment itself, though, like I think my dad wanted me to take away you know, oh my God, I love engineering. That was what I think he yeah. was hoping is that I'd love building things from scratch, but I actually love selling things a lot more, making money, being able to be independent and buy my own things. That was kind mm -hmm. of the mentality that was fostered into me at a very young age. It's amazing how lessons come around in different ways, right? The lesson that your father was trying to teach you in that moment, perhaps yeah. wasn't the one that he had in mind, but had such a profound effect on shaping your future. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and, you know, I think one other thing is my parents were very open with me just doing things like this, like mm -hmm. learning on the fly and not, you know, only concentrating on school. They were totally fine with me, you know, stacking up my calendar with a bunch of extracurriculars. And my mom, she used to drive me from the cricket field to dance practice. The next morning she'd wake up and drive me to field hockey practice debate within the evening she'd wait she'd come and pick me up at 6 30 like and she was managing a full-time job and she was managing the home with cooking and having to take care of my older brother as well like i don't know how she did it man but, you know if you want to take a look at a star parent that's my mom yeah and i actually had a very similar mom i grew up with a single mom and i was taking tennis very seriously as a kid i ended up mm -hmm. playing like the really low levels of the pro tour but as a kid you kind of dedicate yourself to it in that way and uh yeah to be the the parent of uh a young athlete, you are just driving to practice, driving to tournament, yeah. getting on two yeah. flights on a Sunday so that they can yeah. get to school on time on Monday. It's, it's, not, yep. it's not a glamorous choice. No, and in case they get injured, you're, you're spending time, you know, just helping yeah. them out, driving them to the doctor's physio, whatever it is. It's crazy. 100%. Twice like, a week I was going to the physio. I, was, yeah. I wasn't built for tennis. I'm five for eight on a good day. This is not a tennis player's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you said you had... Uh, I love for selling, um, and I yeah. really want to get an understanding of this moment that True Fan became a, an idea, the moment you tried to turn it into a reality. I don't know if it was a light bulb moment for you, but I really want to get a taste for the early moments of True Fan uh, becoming something that you wanted to pursue. Sure. Um, when I came up with the idea for True Fan, I was in New York at the time. Um, I was working on another company called Dunk. So there was a big Instagram account at D-U-N-K on Instagram. 
My roommate in New York, Elliot, had started the account in 2013. I came on board as his co-founder in late 2017. Um, okay. And for about six months, I was helping him out with fundraising, with brand deals, and with buying other Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat accounts. Mm-hmm. And being able to put that into our media network where we could then go to a brand like a Warner Music, a Gatorade, a 2K Sports and say, hey, look, we have 21 accounts that total up to about 11 million followers. This is where the 18 to 24 year old demographic is looking, consuming news related to basketball. And this is where you should market directly towards them. So that's what we were doing. I think around December, though, I got a message from Mark Zablo. Mark was the social media manager for Chris Paul at the time. He had done some work with Dwayne Wade. He runs a company in New York called Cogent Marketing. Nice. Um, and he was really, really close with Elliot. Elliot introduced me to him. And um, he sent us a note being like, hey, Chris is actually going to Houston. because He's moving from the Clippers to the Houston Rockets. Do you have a tool that could help him find his top fans? And I thought about this for a bit longer. We didn't obviously have an answer for him. I searched it up. I couldn't really find a tool out there. And I thought, hey, be kind of neat just to build a simple software. Any celebrity, any brand could just put in their social media handle on Twitter or Instagram, and they could see their top 50 fans and be able to message them, reward them, sell directly to them. That was the entire premise that TrueFan was started on. Wow. So it's, I mean, having somebody who's so influential come to you with a problem that you're digging around, you're doing some searching. And I've also been through these searching phases where you have this idea, it feels juicy. And the more research that you do, the juicier it gets because you're not finding any problems, right? You're not, sorry, not finding anybody solving the solution in the way that you're looking for it. And uh, it's almost like every website is, is the one that could kill your dream because it would exist, you know? Oh, totally. And actually it's ironic because the one that came very close to killing that dream was a company called social rank. Hmm. Um, And, when I went onto their platform, I'm like, mm, they do have something called most engaged followers. It's just their algorithm for calculating most engaged followers was very different from ours. And you know, what we wanted to do was go very deep into fan engagement, whereas social rank wanted to go very deep in terms of just showing you your entire following and then allowing you to filter based on that. Yeah. Um, it's ironic though, because about four or five months ago, we bought them uh, yeah. and we bought social rank, put them as a part of our tech stack. Um, we're hopefully going to integrate the two platforms in the coming months, but um, it's just like moments like that when you realize, hey, cool, like, you know, this is possible. Like a company that you looked up to or that you were a bit fearful of um, can soon join you um, if you commit to an idea and you really, really work at it. Yeah, I think it's about execution. We're going we're gonna to cycle back to Social Rank a little bit later and, and how you've joined together to, to create something that I think could be extremely special. Um, but, the, you know, those moments where they're kind of like, checkpoint moments where you get a chance to just sit back, reflect, and it's, it, and it's on both sides of the coin, good and bad around, wow, okay, you know, we've come a really long way. And it's, it's a, a very interesting mindset you dip into to then set the next set of goals. Like, okay, right. So now, now where am I seeing, where am I going? Um, I'm going to switch lanes a little bit. and I want to touch on you being such a young founder. And I think this applies to all founders, particularly if you're a first time founder, but young founders, um, I think have this problem more than most. And that's around establishing credibility when you're talking to an investor or you're talking to a major client that you're hoping to collaborate with. How do you mm-hmm. get your message across in a way that the person sitting on the other side of the table is responsive to the message that, that you're trying to bring to them? Totally. I think there's three points there. I think one is just pure knowledge. 
um, if you're able to sit across someone and really show them that you've done your research and that you know the space that you're going after really well, it, it just shows. It shows by the tone of your voice, how confident you are when you're speaking and how knowledgeable you sound. So for me, when it came to talking about social media marketing, given the fact that I had an experience working with Dunk, given the fact that I'd grown my own personal brand on Instagram and LinkedIn, I knew about social media. I'm not an expert in it. I would never go that far to call myself an expert in it. But I do think I'm knowledgeable about the space to the point where I can have a conversation with an investor and tell them about this is where the industry tends to be going. This is where we're going. And I think the two are going to intersect here. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, awards, honors, recognition do help. Um, the sad truth that we live in is everyone does have a brand and um, people normally judge other people before they've even met them based on their accomplishments, based on what they've heard about them. So ever since I was 17, you know, when I won Ken, Candid's Top 20 Under 20 to winning Startup Candid Young Entrepreneur of the Year or the United Nations Award, like all of these things, they've been great. I don't think too much about them, but they definitely help when they're put onto a CV or when you're introduced to someone with these accomplishments, because people then start to view you differently. They're like, okay, this person maybe has done something. I'm going to give them my time and be very honest with them and come in with an open mind. Um, and I think the third and final thing is for me, you know, the idea of ageism, if you will, I think, I don't know if that's actually being coined yet, but you know, the idea of people being, um, you know, shunning you for your age or discriminating you, discriminating against you for your age. Like, yes, it kind of did happen to me subtly, but it was also something that I just purely avoided. Like, I do think that there are adults that are going to view you for your age. Um, but I also do think that there are adults that don't care about your age. Like, some of our investors are pure examples of that. Um, Michelle Romanov or Ryan Holmes or Michael Hyatt, they don't care how old you are. They care more about what you know and whether or not you have the chops to be able to take something from a vision to reality. So I think that's kind of the big thing is, you know, as many people as you can try to ignore who view you for your age and that's it, try to, try to ignore them, try to, try to not talk to them because I think there's two, three people for every one um, that are actually willing to listen to you and don't care about your age and see the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, no, I think that's some unbelievable advice that you've given. There's two or three nuggets that I think people can really hold on to. Um, and the one that I think is, has been the biggest shift um, in our journey, and similar the way to you, is get yourself some accolades early. You know, you need to be signing up for many pitch competitions. You know, anything that you can sell, this is all about enhancing your story consistently. You know, you need to be creating momentum on a consistent basis, even if it's not totally linear. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's, if you have a coffee with somebody, and two months later, you sit down with that same person and you have nothing new to say. You have a major problem as a young startup. You know, you have to be chasing momentum and trying to expand this narrative that you're telling on a consistent basis. And awards are an amazing way to do that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and I think, I think, you know, when it comes to telling that narrative and being consistent about it too, I think the biggest thing is also just to be honest and reasonable. Like, I think a lot of young entrepreneurs BS what they've done. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of young entrepreneurs also BS what they know. Like, for me, if you ever hear me on stage, for example, when I speak, I strictly only speak on things I know a lot about. If someone asks me a question about Bitcoin, I will be very honest and tell them I have no idea or no <laughs> clue what the hell is happening in the world of decentralized currencies. I have no clue. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, what people start to appreciate too, especially older people, is they want young people not to come with them with an arrogant point of view. They want young people to come to them with a 
hunger to learn and to kind of feed off their wisdom that they've accumulated over the years. You've got to be a student of the game at all times, right? Really, you really do. Especially for certain older entrepreneurs who've grown up and they've seen a lot in life. The worst thing you can do as a young entrepreneur going up to them and just being like, oh yeah, I don't really care about your advice or your wisdom or what you've learned. I'm more, you know, I care more about just talking and explaining myself and telling you how awesome I am. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I want to dive into this a little bit deeper, right? So I think as entrepreneurs, particularly young entrepreneurs, it's a very interesting shift where from the time you're at school through to maybe you have a first job um, and you know the early stages of your career, you always have this guiding hand telling you what to do, what's right and what's wrong, right? At school, you're told what's right and what's wrong. At your job, you're basically told what's right and what's wrong. When you suddenly throw yourself into the world of entrepreneurship, you're in the jungle. You know, you're mm-hmm. out here making your own decisions, having to learn from your mistakes, and you have to become very reflective where you're able to look back at decisions and situations and be very honest with yourself around your performance and then try and think of ways to improve. I want mm-hmm. to get a feel for your reflective process and how it's evolved as you've grown as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think A is I'm very self-accountable. Um, I know days that I've worked hard and days that I haven't. I just know. Like, and yeah. I think I've had enough days where I've worked hard and I've seen the needle move that I know what standard I need to hold myself to. Um, however, it does mean, obviously, for whatever reason, that there are going to be days where I don't work as hard. And I think the biggest thing about me, too, is I don't beat myself up for those days. Yeah. Um, unless it's consistent, unless mm-hmm. I'm not working hard, like for two weeks in a row, three weeks in a row, and I wasn't on vacation, so I have no excuse, then it might start to trigger a little bit. But for me, like I normally take things very chill and calm and try to reassess what I need to do the next day to just catch up on work. Um, the second thing is I try to get input from my team as much as possible. And that honestly really helps with being a part of the incubator that we're in called the DMZ, because mm-hmm. they actually do staff leadership surveys. So we had one done about a month and a half ago. We're going to have one, you know, again, a month from now. And just being able to see the anonymized feedback from your employees on what they think about your leadership and what they think about where you're taking the company and where they see themselves and whether they actually feel like they're being respected. All of those things are just so important. And I take all of that, by the way, not just with a grain of salt, but I take it with a lot of importance as well, because whether or not I agree with someone's feedback, in my opinion, doesn't matter. If someone decides to write that, they clearly have some feeling for that, right? So I need to respect that feeling even if I don't agree with it. Even if I don't agree that Bill, for example, um, you know, I don't think Bill deserves a raise and I don't think he should have a bigger part in the company. If Bill feels that way, I need to do something about it. So I think that's number two is I'm very open and receptive to feedback, especially from my employees. And the third thing is, I think for me, just in my reflective process, um, I like to talk to my mom a lot. Um, I That's talk to so her every day. Yeah, like she, she, you know, she's not an entrepreneur. She, she's been a teacher her whole life. She teaches, though, at a pay cut to teach immigrants and refugees how to speak English when they come into the country for the first time. Um, she's an incredibly giving woman. She's very hardworking. But I think the biggest thing about her is any issue that I ever have, she puts it into good perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I.e., she has gone through a really bad divorce, which she's, I think, on the tail end of, north and off on wood. Um, she's had issues with her mortgage. She's had issues with her job. Um, she's gone through all of that though, with her hell, her, her head held high. She's 
gone through it and, and still come out with a smile and still haven't lost that giving self. And so anytime I talk to her and I vent about certain issues, she literally just talks to me and is like, what the fuck? Like, are you <laughs> seriously crying about this? <laughs> like, what is the issue? And she'll give me a reality check that sometimes I really, really need. Yeah, because um, like you know, a lot of issues. I think, especially with entrepreneurs, when you're so isolated, because you're kind of in your own world of doubts and your own anxiety and your own vision and your own world. Really, um, you sometimes feel like your problems are the most important in the world, and that yeah. your problems are only affecting you and no one else. Um, but that's not the case. You know, a lot of the problems that entrepreneurs face are fairly common, and again, they're not the biggest problems in the world when you are able to kind of get that perspective check and start to realize what other people tend to go through. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think something I've really picked up on there um, that I find fascinating just from comparing it to the way that I feel like I'm evolving in this space is it seems like you're becoming less emotional um, when possible, particularly when dealing with other people's opinion about yourself and criticism and, and everything else. I think when you're fresh in this game and you know it may be other elements of your life as well, I think it's easy to get emotional about opinions and about outcomes, but when you start to see it as a puzzle around, okay, this is now the situation that I've been given. How do I create an experience and how do I create an outcome that's positive for everybody? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think having that detachment allows you to make much more effective decisions. And the fact that you're seemingly dipping into that space at such a young age, I think is really impressive because it's not something that, that is taught. You know, I think that's something that you kind of find within yourself. Yeah. And I think the first step also with taking criticism and being very honest about it is also just not thinking too highly of yourself. Yeah. Like you should definitely be confident, but you shouldn't be overconfident. And I think, you know, the, the sign of confidence, in my opinion, the pure sign of confidence is are you able to make fun of yourself? Like if you're able to make fun of yourself, I genuinely think you're the most confident person in the world. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And it, it, it shows, you know, it completely shows when you're not trying to shout about what you're doing um, and you kind of just let people figure it out for themselves. It's a, an absolute sign that um, you're comfor- com- confident and comfortable and, you know, you're, you're composed and ready to make moves. I, I think you're bang on the money with that. Um, talking about being composed and being comfortable, you are an absolute machine on the stage. You've given three TEDx talks, which is one of the most prestigious stages in the tech scene. Um, What I want to get a feel for is the preparation for these moments, right? For a lot of young entrepreneurs, (laughs) these pitches are going to be some of the most daunting experiences that they're going to have um, through the early phase of their growth, right? And everybody has their own way of pitching. Everybody tells their story in their own way. But I want to get a feel for the way you're preparing for these moments and how that's evolved over time to create such impactful performances? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think it honestly even starts off with debating. Like in grade seven and eight, I did exactly what I did in preparation for my first TEDx talk, which was in 2016, I believe, mm-hmm. or 2015, one of the two. Um, it was in my first year of college. But the, the coolest thing, you know, not the coolest thing, but the, the thing I did really was I I wrote out the entire script and then I memorized it, right? So very similar to grade seven and eight in debate, I'd get a topic, I'd write out my speech word for word, and then I would recite it. I think where I've gone to is a model that some people might actually think is lazy, but it's not, where I actually only prepare for speeches the morning off. Mm -hmm. So the morning off my talk, I will come together, I'll have a sheet of paper, I'll go on my notes on my iPhone, 
And I'll write down the three or four takeaways that I want to leave the audience with. These have to be very clear, tactical, actionable takeaways that they can go home that very night and, and do, right? And so that's my big, big focus is I'm trying to not give just inspiration, um, but I'm trying to be able to give some level of tactical tips that people can take away and start acting on immediately. And so that's what I do. I write that out. And then I obviously have given so many talks now, um, probably over 100, 150 now worldwide, that it just comes second nature to come up on stage, interact with the audience, give my spiel, give the takeaways, answer questions in a very light, positive, confident manner, and then get off stage. Um, and that's exactly what I did, by the way, with my second and my third TEDx talk is I did not prepare for it. I did not write out a script for it. I went up and I just let my heart pour, you know, and especially with those topics, like the, the second TEDx talk was around LinkedIn and storytelling. Yeah. And that's something I can probably talk about in my sleep, right? You know, it's consumed mm-hmm. my life for the last three years. Um, I, I do think I know a lot about LinkedIn. I think I do know a lot about how to be able to put out various types of content, how to engage with your community, how to go about collaborating with other people that are putting out content. So that's what I shared. And then the third talk was on mental health. And, you know, I don't think I could go off with a scripted talk on mental health and be as authentic as I was during that third talk. Mm-hmm. Um, because in that third talk, I really wanted to look at each person, each person in the audience in their eye and really connect with them. And the only way I thought of doing that was by just being very honest with myself and sharing what I felt in my heart at that moment. So that's what I did, you know, and I, I tried to structure it obviously in terms of like an introduction in terms of like the takeaways and then a conclusion, but whatever was in between all of that was very impromptu. It was things that came into my mind came into my heart or things that I was responding to based on the audience and what they were liking or not liking. I think that's so interesting. And I think like you said, it's, it's a game of reps pitching. You know, when you get to the hundred, 150th pitch, um, you're pretty much going to have your, particularly if you're pitching a, a product. And I, I, I give this advice all the time. Your one, two, five and 10 minute pitches should be automatic by the time you're, you're even five, pitches in you know these need to be refined you're constantly fine-tuning them but once you're comfortable enough with the the basics and the topic and everything that you've got going on that's when you can start to bring a little bit of source to the table you know you can start to get a little bit of free form you can find your groove you can interact with the audience and when you get to a real stage of mastery that's when you can go on and you've done so many different iterations of that pitch that you can kind of dip in and out of them as it seems like you do, where you just kind of dip in and out of knowledge and, and bring it to the audience in a way that you feel is going to keep them engaged throughout the duration of that thing. Totally. That's exactly it. Yep. You nailed it. Cool. Um, so something that you touched on, something that you speak about very publicly um, is around mental health. Um, I've talked about this, um, on several podcasts as well. Uh, there's two different elements that I, that I want to touch on, right? So the first one is that entrepreneurship is a very complicated mindset to be in. You know, you're dealing with the anxieties, the pressures, the highs, the lows. It's a very unbalanced atmosphere that you find yourself in. You know, it's not just on the balance sheet that things are difficult. It's, it's everything that's going on on a day-to-day basis with you. I want to get a feel for some of the most effective ways that you've gone about bringing balance to your day in day out mental wellness. Yeah, I think look, balance for me has always been a very hard thing because I do work at very unorthodox hours. Like 
I can either work 18 hours a day or I work six hours a day. Like, you know, I fluctuate dramatically based on what needs to be done, how I'm feeling, um, and really just like what type of day it is. <laughs> um, so, so for me, like, I think finding balance is something that I kind of learned from my co-founder Onyx really well. He's from Vancouver. He's a West Coast boy. They have water and mountains there and a lot more beauty than Toronto has. Mm. And he's kind of got me pretty obsessed about nature. Um, right. So okay. like going out and appreciating your surroundings, really observing your surroundings and, and not taking it for granted. And I think a lot of people, by the way, are learning about that during this time where we're all quarantined, just mm. how valuable it is to go outside for a walk and enjoy the company of your friends. Like, I hope people don't underestimate that the next time they're at a dinner table around their friends outside. Um, that being said, though, I also do, you know, throughout the week, try to try to get off. Um, work a bit early to go play basketball, to hang out with my friends. Um, you know, I play basketball weekly and that's a great way to just get my mind off work and to be competitive yeah. about something entirely different. And like I mentioned, I also talk to my mom pretty much every night um, for at least 15, 20 nice. minutes. Uh, and, you know, when we chat, we chat about Bollywood, we chat about everything but work. You know, we, we just go through and it's just super fun being able to chat with her. But I think that's what I do, man. Like, I don't have a regimented system. I don't, you know, get up at 7 a.m., meditate, shower, then eat some herbs or whatever. Like, I don't do that type <laughs> of stuff. Like, I, I, I just, I, I get up whenever I feel like I need to get up. If I have a 9 a.m. meeting, I will get up at 8.30. I'll shower. I'll get up to my meeting. And, you know, I'll try to, throughout the day, find places to, you know, properly eat. Like, that's something that I kind of set as a goal for myself this this year is, Let's actually try to stick to three meals a day and not one or yeah. not two. Um, so, you know, having a bit of a breakfast, whether it's a banana and milk and then going into an early lunch and then a, a big dinner, that's something that I've been trying to focus on because I really do think what balance comes down to is eating right, working out and sleeping properly. That's really mm -hmm. it. If you're able to do those three things properly, everything else will fall into alignment. Yeah. And I think what it sounds like for you is that you, you're accepting of the, of the rhythm and the way that you're effective in life, you know, I think, again, something that people can find very difficult um, is when you come out of a nine to five, say you've been working in the city for the last five years and you've got an idea and you're taking this lunge into this new reality, you're so conditioned to this at the desk for 8.30, getting up and leaving by five. And that can work for a lot of people. But if that is mm -hmm. not when you're effective as an entrepreneur, you're doing yourself an injustice not to experiment a little bit, you know, sometimes you're on fire and you, and you keep going and you're motivated. And sometimes you, you want to call it a day at four and take a walk and, and listen exactly. to a new playlist that you put together, you know? Um, exactly. It, you know, that spark will come to you at any time. Like for me, that spark comes to me normally at like 8 PM to 2 AM, which is really regrettable, but <laughs> you know, at the same time it is what it is. Right? It is what it is. Exactly. You know, you've got to play your game, you've got to live the truth for sure. Um, okay, so LinkedIn is obviously the social platform that you've completely locked in on. You said Instagram as well, but to me, it feels like LinkedIn is, is your absolute home ground. You've got over 100 million views on the content you've created on LinkedIn. You're one of their top creators. What advice would you give to anybody who's trying to maximize the value they can get out of that platform? Yeah, I think, A, it's worth noting that most people have a a LinkedIn profile, um, but they haven't done anything to make it look appealing, right? So when yeah. an employer, when a potential client, when a potential investor advisor searches you up on LinkedIn, 
ideally you want them to find the best version of yourself. You want them to find the most up-to-date experiences, the most up-to-date honors and awards, the bio that really will convince them that this person is worth talking to or is worth working with. So make sure to just put some time and effort, first of all, into even building a proper profile and keeping that updated as much as you can. Because I do think that your LinkedIn profile is a modern CV, it's a modern resume in, in the digital age. Um, and I think B, what's really important is if you do have like about a you know time for like maybe 30 minutes or an hour throughout the week, which I think everyone can carve out, um, try to just sit down on LinkedIn and think about your week. You know, what takeaways did I take away from my work? What lessons did I learn? What failures did I go through? And see if you could write a paragraph or two about it and share it. You know, that's the first step is, is coming together, writing about your work. And then if you start to see the results pour in, and by results, I mean you start to see your network expand, a bunch of people start to comment, people starting to notice that you're sharing content, people starting to even hear about your brand through your content, which is something that definitely happened with TrueFan. Yeah. I think you'll start to get hooked on it and you'll want to do more on the platform, whether it's churning out videos, working with other creators, hosting meetups, etc. No, I think that's, I think that's really cool. Um, is there one piece of content that you've posted on LinkedIn that has had uh, a huge result come of it? Is there something that brought a client to true fans? Is there something that triggered the interest of an investor? What was the, what was the post that made the biggest impact? I think the post that made the biggest impact was when about two years ago, I participated in a, in a challenge called the Let's Get Honest campaign. So me and three other creators um, decided to come together and we were tired of people just talking about you know, successes and victories that they had. We wanted people to talk about their failures and vulnerabilities in the workplace. So we all decided to share a video um, where we talked about vulnerabilities that we had as a professional. And we decided to write a bit about it in the caption of the video and then tag two to three other people that we want them to do the same, nominating them basically. So powerful. And that, that whole campaign, yeah, that whole campaign um, was just huge. Like it got 26 million impressions overall. LinkedIn actually made it a category on their nav bar wow. so that people could immediately go and see all the posts that were coming in with the hashtag, let's get honest. Um, and I think it, it kind of, Prove to a lot of people what I'd been talking about in regards to LinkedIn, that it's not just a platform where you dump your resume and that's it. It's a platform where you can connect with people and post content and inspire people and build community. That's something that I was trying to convince people off. And I think the Let's Get Honest movement was very pivotal to that. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's so cool. And it's, it's a consistency game, right? If people think they post once or twice and then all of a sudden they're going to be LinkedIn rock stars. Like this is like any platform, you know, this is going to grow over time if you nurture it. Yeah, exactly. If you nurture it, if you care for it, like for me, you know, even now I still comment back to as many people as I can. Anytime someone comments on my post, I like to just show that, Hey, your comment has been picked up on and I appreciate it. And here are my thoughts and response. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people talk about community and building community on LinkedIn. Then I go and check out their posts and they're not commenting back to people that are taking time out of their day to literally just share a tidbit there and there. And I'm just like, what community are you building? Like, <laughs> is this a community in your head? Like I have no clue what they're talking about because in essence, I think your community is really what happens in your inbox and in your comment section. Yeah. That's what your community is all about. 100%. So you touched on the power of expressing 
failures, right? I, I want to dip into some of the more difficult times that you've had as an entrepreneur, some of the things that have taught you lessons that have shaped who you are becoming and who you are today. Is there a, a lesson in particular that's resulted from a disappointment or a failure that's really shaped you? I think there are multiple throughout. Um, I think, you know, I've had failures with previous startups that I try to just like try to try to start. Um, I try to start a food delivery app called food share in my yeah. first year of college. Um, I tried to start an incubator that was entirely virtual called the next boundary, which didn't work. Um, I had a social media agency that went under, like I've had all of these failures. Um, and, and I've picked up a lot of lessons from them. And then on top of that, like personal failures as well, you know, like not really things I think I've done, but just things I've experienced, whether it's, you know, my parents splitting up or losing loved ones or just going through a really rough time at college because I had a great social experience, but academically I wasn't that strong in college and mm. it added to a lot of pressure that I was putting on myself. So I think I've obviously experienced failure, but I think the biggest thing for me is I, I tend to check in with myself once a week. I write down what I'm unhappy with and then I really do forget about it. Like I, I try to take away the lessons and remember them as much as I can, but for the most part, I don't really dwell on the past. Like I try to just constantly think that tomorrow is going to be a new day, a new day for me to really, really be a new me. Like people talk about new year, new me. I think a new day. Yeah. Like I think tomorrow I can maybe do X, Y, Z things better than I did today. Um, and I view myself in that kind of lens. Yeah. I think the, the constant evolution of the, the mental approach and just, just the way you see the game as an entrepreneur is, is so exciting and so interesting. And I, I say a lot of the time that when the positive things start to happen around, you know, the thing that excites me the most is the way that I'm thinking, you know, feeling and noticing the way that I'm thinking differently than I was six months ago, 12 months ago. Like that's, that's interesting to me. You know, that's something I can work with, you know, results come and go. You're going to have wins. You're going to have losses. You know, hopefully the losses aren't catastrophic, but if they are, the way you're thinking in that moment in time is completely different to when you started that journey, you know? And I think once you have the tools to play this game, then, you know, you're, you're at the chessboard. Yeah. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. So something that I'm, I'm keen to get a feel for, as such a young entrepreneur, something that I've been looking for for a while, and I'm honestly still really yet to find, is a, a mentor figure who can really, um, when it's time for the big decisions, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, um, you have big and, and small decisions, a bit like tennis, you know, you have smaller points, like 15 all, and then you have big points, set point, break point. When I have the big points of this game of, of entrepreneurship, you know, I would love to be able to have somebody that I bounce these ideas off and I'm yet to find that perfect match. Is there somebody for you that has really shaped you as an entrepreneur and helped guide you through this process? There, there are too many people. Um, I mean, we wow, have nine so advisors. Yeah, we have nine advisors at Truefin. We now have about over 30 investors. Um, all of them have played an incredible part. I think the two people that come to mind, though, right off the top of my head are Michael Hyatt. He is an entrepreneur in Toronto. He started a company called Blue Cat Networks. Um, I think he sold that for about $400, $450 million. He's an incredibly, incredibly humble guy. Mm. Um, I went on a walk with him two years ago. Um, and I remember, you know, just thinking, all right, this guy's so wealthy, holy crap. And then we just like <laughs> hit up pretty much every secondhand game shop and every secondhand clothing shop. 
Yeah. Like this guy lives really below his means. And I thought that was super inspiring just to see. And then, you know, throughout, I've just kind of been in touch with him, obviously decided to make him an advisor and true fan, but just anytime I need any help around navigating a certain situation with an employee or raising money or figuring out how to scale and grow, he's the person that I call and talk to because he just knows it all. Um, and I think the second person on the marketing and personal branding side would be Gary V. Um, mm. Gary's obviously someone who I met three years ago and sat down with him for 15, 20 minutes and we've been in touch ever since and had the honor of speaking with him twice now. Um, and it's just been amazing like to, to be able to have someone like him who's obviously so busy. I can't really message him every single day. Yeah. But anytime that I do need to get to him, I know that either him or his team, um, which is incredibly hardworking, they'll be receptive to that and they'll make it happen. Yeah, you know, so interesting. You're actually the, the second guest in a row on this podcast that said Gary is, is their, go-to, their go-to person for that. I just think that's such a testament to him because he is so busy, like ridiculously busy. Yeah. So that the fact he's still giving back in that way um, just speaks to his, honestly, his love of the game more than anything else. You know, I think it's like if you look at Kobe, um, obviously sadly passed away, but if you look at the way that he was working with a whole bunch of the, the NBA youngsters to just help groom their tactical approach, to help groom the way that they're trying to navigate this balance of, you know, the athletic lifestyle and, you know, trying to grow as a, as a person, um, he, he strikes me as having a very similar attitude in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we only have time for a couple more questions. I could literally do this all day. I'm having such fun with this chat. Um, something that I'm keen to get a feel for is your end game, right? I think a lot of startups, a lot of entrepreneurs have an end game. Some don't. Some just love the process, love the learning of it all. Um, I would love to get an idea of if you have an end game, if you do, what it is, why it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, for me, my next move is going to be within entertainment. Um, it, it'll still be in the capacity as an entrepreneur. I, I really want to do something around production, though. Um, okay. So I, I've, you know, had a big passion for the movies for, for some time. Um, grew up watching Chinese movies, Hollywood movies, Bollywood movies, being obsessed with them. Um, so I think I'd love to, to go into that angle um, and build a production company that focuses on uplifting marginalized directors. So people you know, directors that come from marginalized communities and then being able to hopefully give back to the fine arts in those areas um, through the productions that we create. Um, that's kind of my, my next move that I really want to get into. And then I think past that, um, I don't know, I think I'd love to, to kind of go deeper in entertainment, whether that's directing or dancing. Um, you know, obviously I've shown a bit already of, of how my, I'm kind of interested in fashion with sneakers that I'm designing or whether it's nice. a clothing line with OmFam. So there's stuff that I really want to do in the entertainment industry that'll ta- probably take me a, a few couple of years. Um, but the end game for me has always been politics. Um, I just know that, you know, in my thirties or my forties, whenever it is, like I don't have a set age or goal to, to mm-hmm. reach it, but I do know that the end game is, you know, to run for office in Canada. Um, hopefully at the highest level one day uh, and be able to take my vision for the country, which is going to constantly evolve. It's going to get better. It's going to get more nuanced as I grow up um, and act on it. I think that's so cool. My, uh, my founder for Peach Studios, our, our uh, creative product studio, his, one of his first meetings that I had with him, um, he said, you know, sure, this is my, uh, 
my goals right now. But his end game was similar to, to be the, the president of Slovenia, uh, which, mm. is, which is his country. And I think it's so interesting how when you have profound thoughts and he's hyper-intelligent, same way you're hyper-intelligent, um, to want to be able to take that to the ultimate strategic game of how do I improve the lives of, of my country? Um, I, I think that's so interesting, such a powerful vision, you know, such a powerful goal to have. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I love it, man. I love it. I think it says a lot. Um, okay, so one of the last things, it would be a shame not to touch on the situation we're in right now um, as we're sort of coming into to isolation because of the coronavirus. Um, there's obviously a lot of people, a lot of businesses who are finding this difficult right now. What verticals, what industries do you think have the opportunity to capture this moment and thrive, you know, something that I think has a real potential to blow up as esports. I think EdTech is another mm-hmm. vertical that can really start to aggressively attack this market. And I'd love to get your thoughts on on where you see high potential in this space. Yeah, I think for me, e-commerce and direct-to-consumer are the two that come right off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been cultivating digital communities for some time. They've been relying on digital communities to activate. Um, in a world now where people are on social media now more than ever before, they're scrolling through the web now more than ever before, they're interacting with advertising now more than ever yeah. before. Um, I think they're just well situated to be able to grow and do well during this time. Um, but that being said, I do think that this virus is going to also make a lot of companies that were traditionally offline now think about an online approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after the virus is over, I think it's going to lead to a lot of traditional brands like a Hershey, for example to develop an online strategy and start acting on it because they know they can't simply rely on retail anymore. And I think a lot of these companies knew that they needed an online strategy. I think they just needed a push. And this is kind of the push that I think they've gotten finally to be like, all right, let's go all in on this and figure this out. Very cool. Okay, Swish, uh, we're going to end it there. I really appreciate your time. This is a lot of fun. Um, Thank you for coming on Peach Black. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And uh, let's grab a coffee when I'm back in town in Toronto, when we're allowed outside again. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right, deal. Let's do it. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate your time.